I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. See ya. Monday, indeed. What is up, Jeff? Trey, how you doing? How was the weekend? Weekend was good. You weren't in Lawrence, thankfully, but considering that this stadium is right down the road from your offices, were you at the Austin FC game on Saturday night? Because that's where my family and I were. Uh, did not make it over there as close as we were. Um, I was solo on Saturday, so it was just too much, too many games going on, you know, with women's yeah. game, men's game, baseball game, softball game. Um, and those seven thirty game times are, are a little tough for the 10 o'clock news. I mean, you can get highlights in, but it's tough to do any extended live shots, post game, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Cause the game comes to an end right around nine 30, which makes it really tight. Yeah. And then, you know, they do the cool down, they, they go walk around for a little bit and then they, when they finally get up to the podium, it's about between nine 45 and 10. Hmm. When do you have the full sports cast taken care of normally by 10 o'clock prior to that? Just after that? Yeah, it just kind of depends on the day. I would say, I mean, definitely I'm obviously kind of thinking about it, planning it. We call it stacking it, putting in the rundown, all that kind of stuff. Um, But yeah, if everything's early in the day, I mean, I'll have 95% of it done by eight o'clock, I would say. When a lot of times it's this, you know, you do the six. So if everything happens early, you update stuff, switch things up a little bit, kind of change the way you want to present it, and then go from there at 10. But yeah, usually, I mean, there's it kind of just depends on the day. There's certain Saturdays, especially Saturdays, even Sundays too, where there's just so many games going on that are late. Like even that Texas game, the basketball game was over by about 7.15, but then that was like when Austin FC was starting and you want to watch, keep track, take notes, all those kind of things. And uh, unfortunately, I had to watch both those games. <laughs> yeah, well, the Austin FC game and our travels to the Austin FC game, which I will get to here in a second. BK and I talked about this a little bit earlier, too. Thankfully, took me away from the Texas-Kansas game. And I got to see the best part of the Texas-Kansas game because Texas was sticking with Kansas to a point. Kansas had just gone on a like a 5-0 run. And that ultimately turned into a 12-0 run. and. Jayhawks never really looked back from there, but my plan was to get to the uh, Lake Line train stop to take Cap Metro down to Q2 because Cap Metro was free for everybody on Saturday in celebration of that new Michaela Place stop right out in front of the stadium. And so we get to the train stop, and I pull my phone out, put YouTube TV on, and it goes to the game, and somehow Kansas is up by like 20 points. Like four or five minutes left in the first half. I'm like, wow, that, that got ugly in a hurry. But the good news is I don't have to go back and rewatch this game now. Assuming Texas doesn't come back, which I knew they weren't going to come back. Yeah. And it was basically all the things that we said they couldn't do on Friday, Trey. I mean, what, what do we, 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 we sat there Friday and said, if they, if they don't shoot well, if they can't make shots, then 
just none of it matters. Like none of these nuanced game plan things that we're all talking about matter at all. If you can't hit some shots early. And like you said, they stuck in there for about seven or eight minutes, but they just, they just don't hit shots, man. Like, I don't even know. I don't even know what else to say. Like Kansas's defense was great. It wasn't a game I was expecting Texas to win, but they just played so flat. And I give teams a pass on the road or every couple games, whatever it may be, every once in a while, if you have a game where you just can't hit shots, it just happens way too often with this team where they can't make a freaking basket. And it's so frustrating to watch because then you can't ever stop a team's momentum. Um, they can't get a stop. They didn't play physical at all. It was it was pathetic. Like, I'm trying to hold on with this team based on how positive I've been and how I've said that, that they, uh, I, I think that they can, you know, piece this together at some point. I mean, I am whatever falling off the bandwagon is with your leg falling off your body, your whole <laughs> entire or so, one side of your body being scraped and dragged. That's me on the bandwagon right now, Trey. That's me on the bandwagon trying to hang on, trying to give this team a chance. But you know what? If this team's not going to fight themselves on the floor, then why the hell should I give a shit? That's kind of that's kind of where I'm at. And I, I always, like I've, I've said, I say this every time, I hate being critical of effort because I'm not saying they went out there and didn't try. I'm not saying the intent wasn't there. But man, like, I don't know if it's a lack of physicality or what it is because, because they go on the, they go on the road and again, thankless, thankless spot. You just played two teams that now have 19 game home winning streaks and are top 10 teams. I think Houston's number one in the country now. So yes, those were not easy games, but you can't look like that for 80 straight minutes. You can't look like basically lifeless for 80 straight minutes. Like there was just no fight ever. And that's what I think bothers me the most. Yeah, I agree with all those sentiments. I'm going to have you exit out of the studio. I'm going to have you exit out of the studio and reset your uh, your computer and your modem, if you don't mind, because you are all over the place. As Gringo Horn 65 just said, you're doing your best Max Headroom impersonation. And uh, yeah, so, uh, so reset your technologies and then come back. I'm going to give us a good 10-minute chunk here where I'm going to play an interview with Craig Robinson, the uh, very funny actor and comedian that I conducted a few weeks back. So while you are doing that, the people will still be entertained by things, and we'll come back and talk more Texas basketball and then some, okay? He is Jeff Barker, my partner from 3 to 5 on Mondays and Fridays. And yes, DJ, I love me some Max too. And y'all figure out Buck's thing. What is Bucky's thing? I haven't seen what Bucky's thing is. What's Buck's problem here? You're going to have to fill me in on that one. Great show, Max Hedrum. That's right. Uh, Throwback to the, what, late 80s, early 90s? It brought Max Hedrum back a couple years ago. It just didn't quite stick, though. Yeah, you'll have to tell me what Buck's thing is. In the meantime, let me get to... Oh, there's some background noise for Bucky. What is that? Is he playing a loud fan? Is he opening his window? People are uh, hearing what's going on outside his window with his giant dogs chasing things off and running away if they're not careful. Making a weird sound on his end. BK said maybe he needs to restart his computer. Yeah, that's a possibility. You do uh, shows via computers at home. Sometimes these things happen, but they also happen in regular 
Broadcasting Studios as well. All right, let me get to my interview with uh, Craig Robinson. You know him from The Office, Hot Tub Time Machine, and a whole lot more. A few weeks ago, he headlined at Cap City Comedy Club in Austin. And I had a pl- the pleasure of uh, chatting with them for about 10 minutes. So you're going to get that right now. Thank you so much for the time. How you doing today? I'm good. How you doing? I'm great. Thank you. Welcome back to Austin. I know this is not your first time performing stand-up in this great city. You've been at the New Cap City Comedy Club before, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, what do you love performing stand-up? Uh, what do you love about performing stand-up in Austin? Uh, this crowd lifts you up. You know what? I, I, uh, one of my favorite stand-up stories uh, comedy stories. I was here for the Fun 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 Fest, which y'all used to have. I brought my band here. We did Fun 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 Fest. I was running on fumes. I ended up doing a show that night at another spot. I don't remember. It was indoor, outdoor. It was dope. And I just remember being so tired, but the crowd lifted me up. Like I, like they would not let me, like they would, it was like, we got you. So uh, that's what I love about Austin. You know, it's like they, they got your back. They hear the to party and, and, and take it to a, another level. So it's uh, one of my favorite places to perform. So anybody who's unfamiliar with your comedic style, it is a blend of music and then more straightforward jokes. And then learning a little bit more about your entertainment past, you come from a musical family. That was uh, your initial passion, but you realized pretty quickly, I think in college that uh, comedy may be the best route for you. And so in Chicago, which is obviously a great place for comedy, you start thinking about doing stand-up. You eventually get on stage, but you admitted in a recent interview it wasn't until you brought your keyboard on stage that it really unlocked things for you. What was it about bringing that keyboard on stage that allowed you to feel comfortable being funny in front of people? Uh, because I had been doing that, like, all my life, whether it's church, home, anywhere, like, and then, you know, knowing how to play the piano made it, um, it, it set me apart you know, and gave me this, this edge, but it was also a, a relaxing thing to just, you know, like as a security blanket, if you would. So, uh, that's, that's what happened. I just went up there and it was like, all of a sudden I was, uh, mad comfortable. And in trying to get better at stand up, you're also looking for knowledge on the subject. And so you buy a book on stand up comedy from uh, Judy Carter. Judy Carter, yes, sir. Is there anything that you have taken from that book all these years later that you're still applying to this day? You know, I, I bet there's some stuff in there. Uh, you know, there, I remember one passage, she, uh, uh, she was talking about how we as comics, it doesn't matter if everybody is it's 300 people in there, 299 of them are cracking up tears in their eyes. There's one person who we're going to focus on is the one that's just like not laughing. And she was saying, it doesn't matter that you don't know that this is, you know, he lost his job. He's just having a drink before he's going to, you know, go crazy. Uh, but we, we focus on that. So that I think there's things like that that come up that I'm like, why am I focused on this person? You know, and I keep checking in to see if this person laughing. Uh, or, uh, uh, and then there's other stuff that I'm sure has like kind of seeped in that I'm not, that, that I don't know if I can, you know, that I can't directly credit her, but I'm sure there's some stuff in there. Uh, but when I first got that book, I remember calling this comedy coach named Neil Lieberman in San Francisco. And he was like, Craig, the thing about that book is half of it is, you know, is right and half of it is wrong and you won't know which half being a young comic, you know. But uh, one thing he told me that I always remember, he said, if a joke 
kills, slow down. And if a joke bombs, slow down. So that's kind of stuck with me for, for the ages too. Is slowing down when you bomb important because your tendency is to try and rush to that next thing versus do the uh, quasi Norm Macdonald thing and kind of uh, relish in the awkwardness? Uh, yeah, I think it's because uh, it's your your tendency is to try to get out of that situation, you know, as opposed to letting it just, you know, okay, bombed. All right. This is what this feels like. This is what it is. Okay. Let's see what else we got here. But yeah, Norm was a genius at just, you know, that pauses and and, ta and uh, taking his time and, and milking a moment. Loved, loved Norm. It's interesting you say that about being or focusing on the one of 300 people who may not be laughing because I've been that one person in the crowd before. It was at the Improv in Dallas, and it was this guy who was kind of doing a hacky version of the Blue Collar Comedy Tour back when that was popular. I was in the back of the room. I didn't even think he could see me. I just didn't find him funny, so I'm not going to, like, put a fake smile on my face or, like, make it seem like I'm laughing. I'm just, like, sitting there watching, waiting for, for him to say something that was funny. And he literally tried to call me out at the back of the room, but I didn't want to get into it with the guy. So I just looked at the person next to me and made it seem like they they were talking. To him. They completely threw him off. Do I feel bad in retrospect? I probably just should have started faking laughing at that point. But uh, he was completely off of his game after that. Your reaction was genuine. You know, you, you deal with you. You want to get involved. Who knows? This could be a different story if you did get involved. You'd probably be, you know. Just, you know, working at a, uh, who knows, who knows what you would have chosen. Who knows? Maybe I would have uh, tried a little bit harder when I was living in Chi-Town to perform the stand-up thing. I did, did some open mics around town uh, 10 or so years ago, but uh, life has a way of distracting us from pursuing our passions. And uh, sometimes it's the people that love us most who are trying to dissuade us from pursuing our passions. Like I was talking to uh, Natasha Leggero last week, and she was about to make oh, a just went super viral, by the way. What'd she go viral for? Whoa, breaking story for you. Bro, uh, she she get went up after Bert Kreischer, who had just taken his shirt off. Yeah. And then she went up on stage and then a flash of boobs for sex. It was it was it was hysterical, it was brave, and she did a thing, you know. So you're right. Was, I, I did see that. Right. She's got guts. She has serious guts, but she was talking about making a move to New York City and her mom was trying to talk her out of it. Heard you talking about that. Your dad was like, you've got this good teaching gig right now. You're going to throw it all away to pursue your dreams. But sometimes only you know best. And you have to uh, come to that understanding on your own if that dream is going to fizzle. And so you take that leap uh, to L.A. Uh, way back when. And I feel like you dodged a bullet in the process, Craig, because you were a teacher at that time. You're getting your or you had gotten your master's in teaching. But teaching has become much more difficult in modern times. I've got a nine and seven year old at home right now. So I see it in person in the classroom sometimes. We've got teachers dropping left and right because uh, COVID screwed things up so badly. So congratulations on uh, pursuing your dream, keeping <laughs> uh, having to deal with a, a bunch of broken kids in 2024. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, I, 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 I had some incredible kids that, uh, you know, some of them reach out to me to this day, actually. Um, but um, I was there, you know, I was the, the fun, like doing music and stuff. And so it it was that stressful part of trying to, you know, discipline these kids and, and they trying you every, every day and yada, yada. So yeah, it, it was a, it was a trip, but, uh, but yeah, I'm, I am glad I got out of there.
So I heard you with the smart list guys, I believe this is almost a, a throwaway line from you, but you had mentioned maybe at some point wanting to do stir crazy on Broadway. How they, serious they brought, were you about that? They brought it up they were like, and they were like, well, what would you and Sean do? And I was like, stir crazy the musical. And then, uh, and then, and then, you know, people have been like, wow, that's a cool idea. But it, it was just, you know, uh, improv in that. And I have thought about it since. So if he's down or whatever, but uh, yeah, I, I, I would be down for that. That was, that's an interesting idea. Yeah. As far as current projects are concerned, uh, you are, are getting a ton of accolades for killing it on Peacock. Uh, just finished the second season. Is that correct? Yeah. Just finished the second season. Is there going to be Thank a you. three? Uh, I don't think so. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, me too. It's, uh, but you know, I mean, it could go somewhere else. We'll see what happens. But, um, right now it looks like it's, uh, it's not moving. Regardless. We, we, that, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was gonna say we had, it was one, it was a, the, one of the best things I, I felt I've done. You know, it was, uh, I loved everybody on there and it was an incredible experience and I was looking forward to doing more. So, you know, it kind of pulled the rug from out of us. You said you really enjoyed doing that show, not just because there was a curb-like quality to it, but there was also a, a darkness to the show. It is a uh, dark comedy after all. What was it about the darkness that you enjoyed? Is it just a, a mere matter of it really challenging you more as an actor to reach certain emotional places you haven't really had to go in the past? There, there's definitely some of that, but I like the edge of it. You know, I like the, uh, uh, like, like the not knowing what's going to happen. And then, you know, just being a part of something that, uh, that I could be the light in. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a lot of different components going on there, but, uh, I really, I just like something that you can, you know, just kind of the grit, you know what I'm saying? I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So last question now, Craig, uh, Natasha's husband, uh, Moshe Kasher, just wrote a really good memoir. And the foundation of this memoir is six different things that he's gone through throughout his life that really shaped who and what he is currently as a comedian, but also as a human being as well. I'm curious for you, is there something epiphanous from your past that all these years later is still so important in who and what you've become today? Great question. Um, yeah, I'm sure there's at least six. Can I think of them? <laughs> um, I don't know, man. Damn. To, to, to be continued. To be continued. Um, the, 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 the first thing that, that pops in my mind is my, 
uh, rest, rest in peace, uh, my, my godfather, Eddie Jackson, AKA Chiney. He, he said, I remember asking him, uh, and this was pivotal because I was like, uh, before I was a comedian, you know, I, I just was like wondering, how do you do it? What do you do? And I just had to, I was like, you think I could be a, 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 a good comedian? And I, I've never asked anybody that except him. And he said, you're going to be successful at whatever you do because you're a good person. And uh, that's that stuck with me a long time, man. And that's a hard thing to be in the business that you're in as well. It's uh, surrounded with a, a lot of sharks, a lot of uh, exploiters who are looking to use good people too, right? There's some good ones in there too, though. But, you know, just got to get swimming with sharks for sure. <laughs> nope, that's on me. That is on me. I was <laughs> muted and I can see you looking confused and you were confused because I had a, a technical fuck up there. But uh Thanks to everybody who had kind words to say about that Craig Robinson interview. It aired a few weeks ago. Craig's not going to be at Cap City this weekend, unfortunately. It was a little <laughs> while back, so you missed that opportunity, but I'm sure he'll be here again before too long. And I think you're out of Max Headroom territory now, Jeff. We're doing a little better now? A little bit better, yeah. Maybe maybe I just... <laughs> We're just having a Monday from 3 to 5 right now. I mean, it is... <laughs> we are full Monday. We're on all day, too. All day. Hey, maybe I just need to maybe I just need to do the hard reset at like two fifty five before I do the show every time. Well, that's the first time that's happened, so I, I don't feel like it's normally a deal. It's just for whatever reason that uh, the technology was at a point that it needed to be reset. Yeah, I, I guess that, the universe was just that. telling me it was tired of hearing me rant about uh about this mediocre basketball team again. <laughs> yeah, well, it's I understand your frustration because you have given this team the benefit of the doubt and you showed a belief in them at a time where everybody was jumping off the wagon and they rewarded you by going uh, three and two in their first five games of a six game stretch against ranked competition. They finished that stretch three and three, but unfortunately it's been a bit of a mixed bag since then. And the most important games on the schedule since then are the games against ranked competition on the road. And they've gotten boat raced in those games. And by the way, they have another game against a good team on the road, a team that's been great at home tomorrow night with Texas Tech. And then a week from today, they travel to Waco to face a Baylor team that is no doubt looking for a little bit of redemption after the Longhorns handed them a loss here in Austin a few weeks back. So it does not get a whole lot easier in what is the toughest basketball conference in America. And... Granted, they do have Oklahoma State prior to that Baylor game this weekend. That game is in Austin. And then they finish up at home against an OU team that has really limped down the stretch as well. So I, you have to beat Texas Tech or Baylor on the road, I feel like, to feel comfortable with your chances of making it into that field of 68 in March. Yeah, and if they don't go get a win against against Tech tomorrow night, which – why would anybody realistically expect them to do that? Or to your point, if they don't do that against Baylor next week either, then it just puts so much pressure on those other games at home the next two Saturdays against the Oklahoma schools, unranked Oklahoma schools, teams that in one OU you've already beaten one time on the road, and then Oklahoma State, who's even worse than them. You would think that those would be two wins, but it just puts an unnecessary amount of pressure 
on those games and getting wins there. Because then if you win, if you lose these two road games and then you split the other games, you're going to be seven and 11 in conference. There's no way that going into the conference tournament, anybody would have Texas firmly in the tournament. I mean, maybe they would be on the bubble likely off of it. So you know, and, how, does tournament, how does the tournament go this year with 14 teams? I guess the top two seeds get buys and everybody else plays first round games. Uh, yeah, I can't remember if it's the first two or exactly how it works. But yeah, I know the first day I think is like Tuesday or Wednesday. And it's basically, I want to say it's 14 versus 11 and then 12 versus 13. And then the bracket gets set somehow based on that. I can't remember off the top of my head to. Um, and I'm terrified to Google anything after my technical issues earlier. <laughs> All right. Then I, I'm going to Google it right now because Texas, the, the bottom line is Texas. If that, those first games count as a first round, Texas needs to make it at least into the third round. If they don't win either of these upcoming road games, even if they beat Oklahoma, the Oklahoma state game doesn't matter that much They're the worst team in the conference this year. So they're going to have to win one of these two games to feel good about things. But I will say as much as, as much as you say the Oklahoma State game doesn't matter that much, and it is recent, it will be recent when they're looking at it, uh, the, the committee, it still gets them that win. It still gets them 8-10 and 10 versus 7-11. and 11. And I know it sounds like Captain Obvious, but, I mean, man, there's a huge difference between what 7-11 and 11 looks like, just when I'm looking at it on the paper, versus 8-10. and 10. Eight and ten then makes you go, okay. Well, you you, you kind of just look at it a little bit differently. Like, oh, they had these wins here and there, and ah, they were you know one bad bounce or one bad performance away from being five hundred in conference play, which I think most people agreed going into the season. And then as the Big Twelve season played out, that nine and nine, depending on what you did in non-conference, as long as you didn't completely you know, fall apart in non-conference before that, the nine and nine in big 12 would be good enough to get pretty much any of these teams in. Cause if you go nine and nine in big 12 play, it, it means that you beat at least a couple of good teams to do that. There aren't nine seller dweller games out of 18 when you're playing in the big 12 that, Oh, you just win those and then don't beat anybody else. So yeah, I mean, and for Texas to do that now, they're going to have to go what three and one down the stretch. Um, I keep saying it all year. I, there's no reason that you would think they're going to beat tech, but you know, any given night in the big 12 and uh, who knows, maybe like if, if you ask me what I would like to see, obviously Rodney has shown that he's not going to pull a Rick Patino or a Rick Patino light or heck even Vic Schaefer here with the women's program to that matter. And, and rip his team post game or call them out publicly or question them try to motivate them that way. He's not going to do that through the media. As much as I'd like him to do that, I need to get over the fact that that's not going to happen. But man, do I hope that is happening behind, behind the scenes. Do I hope people are getting eviscerated behind the scenes? Because it's not just, again, this is what I'll just quickly rehash when I was gurgling earlier with the technical difficulties. And I think most fans would agree with this. It's not that they lost those games. It's that the, they basically were non-competitive for 80 straight minutes. Yeah. 80 straight minutes. And I don't care. Miss me. Go by, by with the, oh, they, kept, they they were in it for seven minutes. If that's the threshold, then, then okay, great. For 73 minutes out of 80, they didn't look like they belonged on the floor. Like it looked like a, it looked like a 
major program playing a mid-major program in December. Like, that's what that looked like. They did not look like they belonged on the court. <laughs> and don't like questioning effort because I'm sure the effort was there. And, and look, Kansas is a better basketball team. Like, they, they just are. They have a better roster. They have championship pedigree. A lot. I mean, Dewan Harris was the point guard of a national championship team. Bill Self is Bill Self. So no one was expecting them to go in there and win, win by 10, anything, you know. But just keep it competitive for either of those two games. That's all Texas fans wanted to see. I, I think I can say that pretty confidently. Yeah, no, another way to put it, because I think what you said is dead on, but another way to put it, if you have a hard time, well, they were in it for a little bit, and then they got blown out. They the game was in the game was decided coming out of the locker room in the second half. Like, yeah, Texas could have gone on a miraculous run, but the word miraculous has to be used there because they were getting completely boat raced by both of those teams. And in the Kansas game, it was especially concerning, Jeff. Because, look, we talk about this team needing to find a third score on this roster. It could be a rotation of guys who step up to be that third score to help Disu and Acemas. Neither of those first two guys even gotten double digits in that game. Disu was dealing with foul trouble. Acemas has been in what feels like a month-long stretch now. I think it's closer to three weeks. If neither of those guys have their shots falling or they're limited by foul trouble or whatever else, nothing else matters there. You face even a decent team, you're going to be sunk. Yeah. And, I mean, Acemas and DeSue combined for 13 points. And, look, DeSue was probably due for a rough game at some point. The way he's been playing, a coach like Bill Self, a decent amount of time to prepare. You knew they were going to come out with a plan to shut him down. And Hunter Dickinson's one of the best post players in college basketball. Like that was a huge get for them. He's, he's an awesome player. KJ Adams, even though he wasn't necessarily on to Sue all the time, he's another matchup nightmare down there that can, that can really guard anybody. And Rodney talked about Adams after the game. And he said, he really is a matchup nightmare nightmare because he can pretty much switch one through four. I mean, he can almost guard anybody on the court, maybe besides like a true center. Like, I don't know if you'd put him on, you know, Edie or somebody like that. Not that anybody can guard that dude. But yeah, I don't know if you'd put him on like a true, true center, but that's not what DeSue is. I mean, DeSue is a really good big man, but he's not necessarily a, a true post guy like that. So yeah, I'm not surprised that they were able to shut him down or at least limit him the way that they did. The problem for Texas right now is they have a Max Acemas problem. I don't know what's going on with his shot. He needs to come out and have one of these games. Hopefully it's tomorrow where he sees a couple go in early and credit Kansas on the defensive end, Kansas state uh, on on Monday night as well. And Iowa state, you know, most of the teams basically besides West Virginia that they've played the last couple of weeks when he's, he struggled a little bit like this because he's not getting great looks. And that does hurt when your shorter guy like that shorter guard. I mean, he's talked about that. He's, he's worked, obviously worked around that his entire basketball career. And it's only as he's leveled up from high school to mid major and tearing it up at Oral Roberts. Now to Texas, it's be, you know, becomes a little more glaring when you have trouble getting a shot off and guys are, you know, face guarding the hell out of you. And, and, you know, some of that's on Texas's lack of half court offense. It's not all on max. There should be other ways to get him and other guys, 
good looks, but that's a that's a big issue for Texas right now is uh, is getting Max Aismas going. And I'll, I'll say this: they've got to get to the tournament. But at least if they get to the tournament, you hope he figures it out. I'd rather have a guy in a shooting slump in late February than early to mid to late March. So, but again, if he doesn't pick it up and they don't win a couple more games to what we were just talking about a couple of minutes ago, it, it's, it's not going to matter. I just worry that the formula is out on him. And as you said, he's played a lot of college games, so it's not like teams haven't tried this before, but you get bigger, bigger more physical guards on him, make it difficult to get the basketball to begin with, but then just don't give him breathing room. He's not quite quick enough in getting around guys to create more shots, but teams have also been good at throwing double teams at him. If he does have that step to either force the ball out of his hands or force him into taking a bad shot, by the way, the big 12 tournaments, the way that it breaks down, good call by you, by the way, because it is uh 13 versus 12 and 11 versus 14 on Tuesday. So the top four teams actually get essentially a two buys because on Wednesday, five, six, seven, and eight play nine, ten, and the winner of those two games on Tuesday. So the top four seeds don't have to play a game till Thursday. And when they do, they only have to win three games to win a championship. I say only. This is a difficult basketball conference to win three games in a row, but that's the path to get there. It is excruciating. If you're one of those first two, first four teams playing on Tuesday, yeah, good luck making it to even Friday, much less Saturday, playing five straight days. <laughs> Kansas might not, they might not even leave Lawrence until like 345 on, on Thursday afternoon. <laughs> oh, they shouldn't. If they don't have media obligations, which they probably do, they should stay yeah. in Lawrence as long as possible. Uh, that's another uh, little side note to to the matchup on Saturday is, will Kansas and Texas play moving forward? I mean, that's every departing team, basically every game they've played, with the exception of you know UCF and BYU, games that weren't really big matchups anyway or don't have in-state ties. But basically every non-Oklahoma matchup or those kind of teams, people have talked about, you know, will Texas play them again and, um, what's the schedule going to look like? And I guess Rodney said on Thursday when, when he talked to the media before the game that he's talked to Bill Self about potentially playing Kansas again. But then he kind of chuckled when he said it and was like, well, you know, not a home and home necessarily. A, a neutral site, neutral site. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I don't blame. After watching that on Saturday, I don't blame you, man. <laughs> yeah. But that would be cool to have Kansas like, I'm sure Kansas would want to come to Texas, maybe not play at Moody, but play a game in Houston like Texas did with LSU in December or have, you know, a game in Dallas or something like that just to keep that that recruiting presence up. Not that they need help re- <laughs> recruiting anybody with with Bill Self at head coach and their their program history speaking for itself, but yeah, that's that's one thing that I I tried to enjoy when I when I watched the game was Hey, I've never been to Allen Fieldhouse. I've been to Lawrence only for a football game, though, which is funny. But I tried to enjoy, like, and it's still the last time I'm, I don't say ever, but I'm sure at some point in the history of college basketball moving forward, Texas will play at Allen Fieldhouse. But the last time for a long, long time that Texas is going to go to Allen Fieldhouse. Not that they're mad about that, but just from a fan media standpoint, I tried to kind of soak that up a little bit because I have a weird affinity for, same in college football, just, for the super historic venues, you know, whether it's 
you know, the Coliseum obviously is personal to me. DKR, that's a, you know, Texas Memorial Stadium. It's a, it's a historic place. Uh, the Cotton Bowl, when we go to the OU game, Notre Dame Stadium. So I, I, I try to kind of soak up and, and learn as much as I can about those historic venues. Uh, uh, well, maybe I shouldn't say obviously. DKR is not on the same level as the Coliseum, right? I would say nationally and worldwide, no. I mean, the Coliseum had the the Olympics. Yeah. You know, and then, I mean, there's all kinds of history with that, with the Coliseum. Like the Dodgers played there for a little bit. The Raiders played there when they, when they first moved to LA. Ooh, we may have just stumbled upon an interesting topic here because where does DKR rank in terms of most well-known renowned stadiums in college football? It's certainly behind the big house. Uh, this is going to piss Texas people off. I, I mean, but it's the truth and probably yeah. behind the shoe. Behind the shoe. I was just thinking that. Behind the shoe. It's got to be behind LSU's stadium because that has such a raucous reputation. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick up for it a little bit, though. Or maybe and we can go through a couple more. But I'll, I'll stick up for DKR in this sense. Because they play their biggest game of the year every year, at a different stadium, which I think is awesome. Like that makes that to me, arguably the best rivalry in college football. There's probably some people in different parts of the country that would argue differently, Michigan, Ohio state, whatever. That to me also depends on the year because that rivalry, I don't care about that rivalry when one of the teams isn't good. So it all depends on, you know, recency bias um, f- falls into play there too. But because, and this is no offense to A&M, there are some big games, but nationally, like, as a kid, again, as a kid with some Texas ties growing up in California, you said you looked at the Texas football schedule. I'd say, oh, I want to watch the Texas OU game. Like, I was never like, I want to watch the Texas-Texas A&M game. No, we would watch it because we were football crazy and still are. But we it wasn't like appointment viewing, like, oh, my God, hey, Saturday, 9 a.m. for us, we're turning on ABC and we're watching Texas OU. So I think because that game, their most nationally renowned regular season game every year, takes place in a different stadium, I think that hurts DKR's spot on this list a little bit. That's a good thought, but as CB points out, up until recently, DKR was known as one of the quietest stadiums with the wine and cheese crowd. Like That's why, speaking historically, or I guess even in the recent past, like Kyle Field probably gets ranked ahead of DKR in terms of places that people want to go check out a game because Kyle field, even if the team hasn't been great, not throwing stones. I know what Texas has been for the better part of the last almost 15 years. Now last year in the sugar bowl year, notwithstanding, but uh, that is a stadium that is uh, it's a unique scene to say the least, even though it's a home stadium, it has, it's a similar ideal to the Cotton Bowl when Texas and OU meet up there. Like you're not going to see anything else like that in college football, like what you get at Kyle Field and the the uh, the the cheers in unison and the uh, the ice cream men down on the field leading things. Like it is, uh, they're all in cahoots there, and that it is a very tough place to play as a result. But Trey, people don't. You're totally spot on, and I'll give you my thoughts on Kyle Field in a minute, which have gotten me in trouble with my UT buddies and Longhorn fans quite a few times, but Kyle field doesn't, 
it's because the, the team's not good. Like, like the, the team's yeah. not good. It's not a nationally relevant game. Like I, I was going to try to put it politely. Like, like no one cares nationally because it's A&M. Yeah. Now if A&M had the history that Texas had, like A&M fans can say all they want. Like you don't have national championships in the modern era. You don't compete year in and year out for the national championship. Like you just said, we made the clarification. We're hard on Texas when we need to be hard on Texas, which basically has been every single second of every single day as of about six months ago, or maybe even less, you know, when Texas made the playoff. But this year, things have changed a little bit. Now, if Texas can keep that going, it changes. But but yeah, with AM, they don't carry the same weight nationally. So that's why Kyle Field may get it a little bit regionally. But I guarantee you, if you had my buddies on from California or you had some guys on from New York or whatever, like they might be like, oh, uh, like I don't even know if they'll be able to name the stadium. You know, but they might be like, oh, yeah, I've heard that's a decent atmosphere. I've watched that game here and there, but it's not going to be one that immediately pops into their mind. Like, you know, some CB mentioned a bunch of the ones that we that we talked about. Yeah, Notre Um, Dame Stadium, too. You're right, CB. But what I do give A&M fans a ton of credit for is what you were just saying. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what's going on, the turmoil in the in the program, the, you know, lack of success on the field, if it's a mess off of it, whatever it is, those fans are in that stadium no matter what, yelling just the same as they as they were when, you know, A&M won a conference championship or whatever their best seasons were over the last 20 or 30 years. They are in that seat no matter what. It could be an I mean, they show out for the FCS games. Yeah. And that that I have a ton of respect for. But at the same time, I can also put them back in their place and be like, unfortunately, you don't matter nationally. And that's why no one, you know, coast to coast really gives Kyle Field probably the respect it deserves. I think all of that is spot on. It's one of, one of my biggest gripes with Texas fans over the years, by the way, is they they will get up or down based on the competition. I feel like that has Truly, I'm not just saying this. I feel like that has gotten a little bit better in the last few years, and obviously last year was a different beast altogether. But I, I can think of games over the last few years where I've just been really annoyed with the crowd only getting up when they absolutely have to to make noise, which is big third down situation. Like, And <laughs> you're about to get this in the SEC. I won't say each and every week because there are exceptions with Vanderbilt and teams like that but that's more teams about the not, only exception when, when their team is on defense it it is loud in that stadium and texas fans need to follow suit and they need to be loud when their team is on defense to make it as hard as possible for the opposing offense yeah some of these sec stadiums i mean i talk all the time about my mississippi days the cowbells in starkville i mean that is something else man the first time i went down on that field to cover a game and it's, you know, the second play of the opponent's first drive. And you're like, they are ringing these things nonstop. Like that is a home field advantage. Granted, they used it a lot more to their to their advantage when I was there. And they had Dak and a bunch of other really good players. And Dan Mullen is their head coach. But that, that's that's a home field advantage, man. And that's another group of fans that, that will – We'll stick it out no matter no matter what. But I think to your point about Texas, that's, that's an ungodly noise, right? Just hearing cowbells ringing in unison. It sucks. 
Yeah, and I think they I'm pretty sure they stop like before the play. Like I think as as the other team, well, I was gonna say breaks the huddle like it's 1994, but as the other team, I want to say like approaches to get set, I'm pretty sure they stop. It's been you know probably six, seven years since I've been to a game there. But I don't think they can do it in the middle of the play. I think they can like ring them and then like they get set and then you got to like bring them down. And I'm pretty sure they, I'm pretty sure I remember them doing that. I feel comfortable saying LSU stadium is, is up there in terms of just uh, the legendary feel for it. What other sec stadiums qualify though? Like on, on what level specifically, just, it's just like always a good atmosphere. Stadiums that belong in the category with the Coliseum or the big house or the horseshoe or Notre Dame stadium or uh, where LSU plays. I would say, I would say Bryant Denny, but again, I've this heard similar, I've heard similar gripes about that stadium that I hear about DKR and Texas fans though. And I think with Bryant Denny too, it's so regional. Like everyone, Alabama's revered nationally, obviously, you know, whatever coastal side you live on big city where people say college football is regional. Well, no, obviously everyone knows Alabama. I mean, even before Saban, there was a respect for that program as a blue blood. Most people respected their place in, in college football, I would say, but yeah, that stadium, I just don't know if it's, it's so regional. Like until Saban got there, I really don't think there were any kids, non-football players, like going to Alabama from Arizona or from California. Mm-hmm. And I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but someone showed it after Saban announced his retirement, the number of out-of-state applicants and students that they've gotten since Saban won his first national championship. Like it's just insane. So they've become more national, at least with this modern generation since then. But I, like I said, I think that's another one where maybe it's just, there haven't been like, like a Notre Dame versus USC that because of the two fan bases and the two sides of the country, I mean, Notre Dame's everywhere. Like you're going to capture the attention of the country when both those teams are good. And I don't know if Ohio state's the same way or Michigan's the same way, but I think um, so. sometimes the stuff in the South, even though that's the best football right now, it's the best conference in college football. It just feels more regional with that where the the rest of the country doesn't necessarily relate to that (laughs) well you know what the west coast can relate to that because they had to start putting games earlier and earlier because they were getting lost in the wash they were putting these these epic battles on late at night the pac-12 after dark as it were and it was uh people were barely flinching as a result unless it was a usc or in a lesser sense, Oregon or Washington, who is doing something special. And there is that East coast versus West coast bias. So there's also a uh, Southeast versus everybody else bias too. And people get tired of the sec just filleting itself over and over again, year after year. Cause there are some years that the sec is not the obvious best conference in the country. This year was one of those years where you did have Alabama and Georgia and Ole Miss to a lesser degree, but the the middle of the pack was not nearly as good as we've come to expect most years out of the Southeastern Conference. Yeah, LSU, even though they had the Heisman Trophy winner, was just a nine-win team that I wouldn't say anybody was really scared to play necessarily just because of how how bad their their defense was. Yeah, the irony with the Pac-12 is 
this was the best year of the Pac-12, top to bottom. Maybe, honestly, maybe in my entire life. Just the, the amount of teams from, you know, you talk about those first six teams, you go all the way from Washington down to Arizona, and even below them to USC. You know, I mean, Arizona beat Oklahoma. That's the stuff that always cracks him about the, the Pac-12 hate too. And I take it a little personally, just being a West Coast guy. But but people will knock the West Coast football because they don't watch it a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And as we're, as we're seeing with the Pac-12, because the programs, for the most part, really besides USC, Oregon, and maybe Washington, they don't really invest like Texas and Oklahoma do, like these SEC teams for the most part do. So people kind of lose sight of, well, hey, Arizona was a much better football team than most you know, most of the middle tier, bottom tier of the SEC this year. <laughs> and even USC, nobody was signing up. The item. As bad as their defense was, no one was signing up to play Caleb Williams again. Well, Caleb Williams, uh, yeah. I mean, he almost single-handedly helped them win games that they ultimately lost because that defense sucked. And then teams were signing up to play them in the uh, the bowl sure. game. Who did they play in the bowl game? I'm not even remembering. Um, well, is the game Miller Moss went off? Who did they play? Uh, Louisville. Okay. So they played Louisville minus Caleb Williams. They won that game, correct? Yeah. Cause my guy, Miller Moss, how about that name? Miller Moss. I know nothing about him. So that's oh. how little I paid attention to non, uh, college football playoff bowl season. I have no, I, you could have just made that name up out of thin air and I'd believe you. Well, you're, you're going to be, you're going to be learning that name. You learn that name, hearing that name a lot more, Trey. Miller Moss yeah. slinging it in Lincoln Riley's offense. Okay. And hopefully they have a better defense to uh, to help them win some games. I'm just seeing this coming down the wire on uh, on the NFL side of things, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Talked about some of these guys last Friday and potential free agents and where they might go. Josh Jacobs did not get the tag from your Raiders. And Saquon Barkley also hitting the free agency market. The Giants are letting him go, so couple of big-time running backs are about to hit the market. We'll see what sort of value they have or how long a deals teams are willing to offer these guys because I believe they're both in that 27 to 28-year-old range, which is uh, when running backs start to lose steam and teams don't have nearly the desire to, uh, to sign them up for long-term deals. And if you're one of these teams, one of these front offices, it really just makes sense at that specific position to let a guy hit the open market and let the open market dictate what, what they should be paid. Don't pay them whatever that percentage is of where it's going to factor in what Christian McCaffrey makes, what uh, I'm trying to think of somebody who else have thought my head, maybe what Derek Henry was making, because that's what that is, is it's some sort of calculation and percentage of, I think you got it. They have to be in the top five highest paid, whatever the average is at that position. So why would you immediately give them that, which is going to be a number based off of essentially a unicorn or a one-off in Christian McCaffrey, who everyone would take that guy and pay that guy, but it falls off pretty quick in the line of guys that you would want to pay really big money to at the running back position. So yeah, I think it's, (laughs) I think it's probably the right move for my Raiders and then for the Giants as well to, you know, maybe you end up losing them, but Hey, let somebody else overpay. And then if they overpay, 
you can still throw an offer in too. You can still be a part of the negotiation without locking yourself in to paying them top dollar for a year. And then if that doesn't happen, you can come back and say, Hey, now you, this is nothing, nothing that we did, nothing that we said about you. We let you test the open market. The open market told you what you are worth at your position in this league. And then you can have just a very, it's not personal at that point because all these guys want to take everything personally and they all want to get paid a bunch. And that's understandable. We, we all want that for our careers, but if you're the teams, because of that, it's just so specific at that position that it makes sense why these teams would make this decision. Looks like the Cowboys are also not going to tag Tony Pollard. Not a big surprise. Same goes for the Titans with Derrick Henry and the Chargers with Austin Eckler. So couple those five guys with DeAndre Swift, AJ Dillon, Devin Singletary, Zach Moss, J.K. Dobbins, Gus Edwards, Ezekiel Elliott, and Clyde edwards Elaire. Uh, there's going to be a lot of new starting running backs for teams in 2024. And hey, we we talk about it all the time. You can go get a running back, yeah, that will rush for with a good offensive line and the right offense will rush for well over a thousand yards. And you can find a complete back like that in the you know mid to late rounds of the draft. Um, heck, maybe somebody even takes a chance on on a Jonathan Brooks in the second or third round. Maybe the Cowboys do that. Yes, and thank you to, I think it was CB who tweeted this at us. Uh, it does look like, uh, yeah, thank you for this one, CB. From Ian Rappaport, uh, Texas running back Jonathan Brooks, a top-ranked running back on at Move the Stick and at Bucky Brooks lists, is healing well and as expected after ACL surgery this season. Uh, should be cleared by training camp, but he will not be able to do combine drills. Neither or The combine drills thing, not surprising but it's great to hear that he is recovering well and will hopefully be back to full speed at some point during 2024 i would hope that whatever team takes him eases him back into action when training camp hits but great news for jonathan brooks and i look forward to watching him have a a long and fruitful nfl career does brooks have a little josh jacobs in him while you were saying that i was trying to think of the comp of some of the guys we talked about where you don't, there's not one thing when I watch Jonathan Brooks, one part of his game where I go, that is awesome. But there's also not one part of his game where I go, he can't do that. Or I don't, you know, like, I don't, I don't want him doing that. I don't want him carrying the ball in this situation, which to bring it back to the Cowboys, that was sort of my issue with Tony Pollard was I think Tony Pollard's great in the right offense, the right plays, the right circumstances. But I don't know if he's a guy where you're just like, Hey, put Tony Pollard out at running back every single down and we're comfortable with whatever the play call is. I think Brooks could fall into that category of a true every down back. See, I think that, uh, that Tony Pollard is going to be a comeback player of the year candidate this next year, whoever selects him. I just think that he wasn't back to full speed until we got later in the year and he started to see flashes of it, but the Cowboys offense was weird this last season. Uh, really good at protecting Dak, not nearly as good with their run blocking to go along with Tony Pollard, not being hundred percent up to a certain point in the season. I like that comparison to Josh Jacobs though, with Jonathan Brooks, because slightly bigger bodied guys, but can do a lot with a the little, they have the ability to slip through tiny spaces and make huge gains out of that. Both surprise you with their speed at times. I don't remember this with Jacobs. Jacobs has pretty good hands too. Jonathan Brooks, I know he had a couple of drops this year that uh, that were killer. 
uh, balls that would have been easy walks into the end zone. But Jonathan Brooks is a somewhat reliable running back catching the ball out of the backfield too. I think that's a great comparison actually. And he had what he showed that speed element is what he showed. I wouldn't know if I'd call it breakaway speed, but if he gets in the open field, you feel comfortable that he can house it. I mean, I'm thinking of the ones off the top of my head, the 40 yard run at Baylor early in the game where they hand it off. He, he breaks it outside and bolts 40 yards for a touchdown. And then there's the one against Kansas where I think he had a 50, 60 something yard one. Um, he did get caught on, on a screen pass against TCU uh, early on before he got, before he unfortunately got injured toward the ACL in that game. But he had one where he, he broke a, like a 70, 80 yard screen pass there. So yeah, not a guy who is going to set a record in the 40, but like we both said, I think a guy that can, that can really be counted on um, to, you know, to be an every down back for you. And, you know, you, you knock on wood with the injury and you hope that this is just a one-off. I know he didn't play much his first two years at Texas, but carried the ball a ton when he was at Hallettsville, you know, playing 3A high school football for for his squad, carrying them to uh, to, to the state championship game. So, you know, and, and no no injuries really that I that I remember there, any, any serious injuries at least um, that kept him out his last year. So a guy that for the most part has stayed healthy. And I think – to your point about the tweet that you, you just mentioned where they talked talk to the doctors and spoke to them about his recovery. I think that's what teams are seeing. And guys like Kuiper are hearing too, the guys that do these mock drafts, because he would have fallen. I mean, he would have fallen by now if people were really worried about the injury history. Oh, and then, Jack yeah. Twitter says, Jay Brooks, best attribute is excellent vision and great patience. Yep, he has a knack for getting to that open patch of grass, and he makes the most of it when he does. Great call there, Cooter. Yeah. What's his, like, what's his true weakness? Yeah, no, he asks if Dallas should sign Saquon Barkley. I don't think so. To Jeff's point from a few minutes ago, you can get really good running backs for a lot cheaper, and I just feel like Dallas has more pressing needs than overpaying for a guy who, by all accounts, when he's healthy, is a star running back. But the when he's healthy is a big caveat there because he has had a hard time staying healthy throughout his, what, four or five years at the NFL level. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's a guy with an injury history that I'd worry about right there. And even though it may not be anything that's was really, really severe every time, it just seemed like he was always questionable, always oh. banged up. Exactly. So I'm looking back at his games played. Rookie year 16, 2019-13, 2022 games. That was a knee injury. Oh, so that was the big injury. 2021-13, then 16, then 14 this last year. So... Most okay. years he gives you at least uh, all but three games played, but uh, there is an injury risk, and unfortunately that surfaced for him this last year too. So I mean, honestly though, if you're playing thirteen out of thirteen or fourteen out of the seventeen games, I'd yeah, I'd like you to play all seventeen. But if we're a team that has Super Bowl aspirations, then I'd rather you just be healthy for the playoffs. Yeah, right. <laughs> so maybe a little bit unfair characterization for me there on his injury history, but it did, it did just kind of always feel like there was something with him. <laughs> well, I think it's in, in his first four years, he missed, he had the one season where he missed most of the season, but those other two years were, if you're missing three games, I mean, you are, you are having to sit out for three games. It's not quite Christian McCaffrey level injury risk. And he was able to play 
what all 17 games this year, plus their playoff games. Uh, there is some concern there. And so uh, there are valid questions being asked as is his age. I mean, he is, uh, he just turned 27. So this is his age 27 season here. Saquon Barkley meet the fate that pretty much every other running back does where it's by the age of 30. That's it for him. Cause if so you get, you sign him to a two or three year deal and hope for the best. And then you let him walk before he hits that age 30 season. And maybe somebody picks him up to serve on a, a sort of committee, be a veteran running back who can teach younger guys certain things. But I don't know if that is a role that uh, Saquon Barkley will embrace. We'll just have to find out in a few years. Yeah, sometimes I'm not speaking for him on this. He hasn't said anything to this point, but sometimes guys have been too high profile their entire careers. I think I think to do that. <laughs> exactly. Well, you see that with wide receivers quite a bit too, where guys don't want to take that lesser role or quarterbacks, by the way. Cam Newton, I don't know if we have the fight from the weekend in our archive or not, but Cam Newton had a hard time being a backup quarterback to be a backup quarterback. You cannot meet, be a guy who is turning heads or making headlines. You need to be the most, uh, the most inauspicious guy on the roster. You need to be, uh, you need to be less known than the, than the backup deep snapper in a lot of ways, even though people know who you are because you're the backup quarterback, that's not Cam Newton's style. So Cam Newton was never going to last in this league as a backup quarterback or a guy who was going to have to get into a quarterback competition to earn starters reps. And uh, the Patriots figured that out the hard way, even though they had him start games at, uh, at a certain point. Uh, they went into that next season and realized, oh, we don't want to deal with this show anymore. Did you see that this weekend? Yeah, that was crazy. Who, who in their right mind would would be like, yeah, you know the best way to solve this situation is for me and my boys to try to fight Cam Newton. We've got <laughs> it here. You want to play it? Yeah, I'm sure. Let's do it. Let's break it down. We got time. So these guys, there's a bunch of dudes going after Cam Newton, who looks like he's wearing a witch's hat, but it's just a regular hat with a hole cut out of the top and his hair going out the top. And so these guys are all going after Cam Newton. And it gets broken up, but Cam Newton, up oh, here we go. It's starting up again. I mean, Cam Newton doesn't really take any hard shots, and he somehow fights all these different dudes who are coming at him. It's uh, I've got to say I'm impressed with Cam Newton's abilities there some people were comparing it to neo in the matrix or there was that element i mean this this dude spent basically every year of his life age 18 to whenever he retired trying to run away or fight off 300 pound dudes who wanted to rip his head off so these dudes at a seven on seven event these i I guess middle-aged guys i don't know how old they were adults like i'm you know likely out of shape thought that they could take Cam Newton. I mean, maybe they just thought, hey, it's a it's a numbers game, but I think you needed one. If you were going to do that properly, you basically needed like three guys for each bulging muscle. So you needed like three guys to get the bicep, three guys to get the delt, like three guys to get the traps. I mean, what were they thinking? They probably were not. Probably yeah. not. Yeah, that was that was silly. Um, violence uh, never the answer, but sometimes it's the answer. Sometimes, very well. Occasion. Okay, okay. Vi- sorry, violence at a seven on seven event on a Sunday afternoon never the answer. No, that's just pathetic. You're a loser. Yeah, yeah. You that's, are a loser. That is that is not okay. Um, and 
also just insanely stupid to think that that's the one dude that, that you would go after thinking you have any chance. I mean, he was, he was basically like, it almost looked like a, like a movie scene minus, you know, minus them souping it up or, or he would actually be like then beating up all six guys. But it was kind of a movie scene where he was just like fighting off all these dudes, <laughs> like a, some superhero crap. Yeah, it's like a version of the uh, hypothetical of do you think you could take on 20 dwarves at one time? Like that's how, look, they were normal sized dudes because Cam Newton's so big, they looked like little people. Hopefully when people like seeing something like this makes people that say really stupid crap about like what they think they could do athletically or like maybe not giving guys in professional sports, especially a physical sport like football or basketball even like the credit that they deserve, like making them, making them finally realize like, Hey, like those dudes might've been in really good shape. Who knows that, that tried to take Cam Newton. You are not on that level. These guys are on a different planet, a different stratosphere, but sometimes, and maybe it's just troll crap that I should just scroll past, but I see stuff sometimes where I'm like, I mean, people just, (laughs) it's downplaying like the athleticism of some of these guys. Yeah, that's and I know Cam is superhuman at quarterback too, but still, these guys are on a different level. Relax, superhuman at quarterback, except throwing the football in the last few years oh. of his career. Those shoulder surgeries they they took it out of him. He did not have any accuracy or any oomph past like I don't know five yards downfield. It's honestly a little bit sad to see, and I know Cam Newton brings on a lot of the uh, the criticism that he receives, but it was it also gets to a point of being unfair too, and. At some point, people were piling on Cam Newton, who, to his credit, never really backed down and uh, basically called for more of it. Yeah, yeah, the guy was a really good quarterback for for quite a few years in the NFL. Yeah. Oh man, anything else going on with you over the weekends? No, I mean, just uh, you know, enjoyed all the different games we had going on Saturday, Sunday. Got to spend a little bit of time out at the dish. I know. Uh, I know you said you're not a, a huge college baseball regular season viewer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think this would be the series that you would make an exception to that rule for. <laughs> I mean, I don't care who it is that you're playing. If you shut a team out for the entirety of a three-game series, that's impressive. Yeah, I asked David Pierce about that after the game, just really more in the context of what can this do for your pitching staff and their confidence moving forward, like for this to happen this early in the season. And he started his answer with, I've been doing this a long time, which I love when coaches start an answer with that. He does that a lot. Vic Schaefer does that a lot. Rodney does it in different ways. Um, but Pierce Pierce said he's never seen anything like that in his years of coaching where the same team, three games in a row across that entire series, he's never, he's never seen that. And wow. I think Texas's last last time with three straight shutouts was 2015. I think they shut out Minnesota. I think I'm trying to remember exactly correctly what they told us, but I believe it was, they shut out Minnesota three games in a row, but I think it was a four game series and maybe they didn't in the other game or they, they lost that game. So yeah, pretty, pretty impressive stuff. And then before that, the last time they did it swept a series against the same opponent and then shut them out in every game was the O2 national championship team. (laughs) 
Granted, oh they did that against UT Pan American, but still, that, that's the team that went on to win the national championship, win the College World Series. So, All hey. right, you heard it here. Jeff just said this year's Texas baseball team is going to win a national championship. Where do you sit in that stadium, by the way, when you're covering the games? So it depends if I'm filming. I'll go to the very top and then just like right under the press box. But I really just, honestly, on Sundays, we have our 30-minute shows. So I usually just pop in there around the seventh inning watch the end of the game and we're listening. I'm listening in the car, watching at the station before that, but then we'll go get post-game interviews afterwards. Gotcha. They, they'll bring David, they'll bring David out and then they'll bring a couple players. They brought out Peyton Powell and Max Ballou, two guys that had insanely productive weekends. Um, and Peyton Powell and Jared Thomas at the top of that lineup for Texas. I haven't watched enough college baseball around the country not going to claim to know a bunch about all these other teams that are, you know, top 10 teams, whatever it may be. But I, I I mean, show me at least through the first couple, first two weeks of the season, a better one, two right there. And I'll, I'll, I'll gladly stand down, but I will say you, you said about me making the comparison to the O2 college world series team. I'm not going to do that to this team. I'm not going to be overly positive about this team. I'm just going to call it how it is. I'm not, I'm not going to have any strong opinions about how well this team's going to play and that they're going to figure it out. Well, they've already got something figured out because I did this to the basketball team and we, we, we are where we are. You are giving yourself way too much credit for the basketball team. Yeah. I'm taking That's, way too much credit. This basketball team, they were playing, they're, they're living in a, a, a Garden apartment with an eight foot ceiling right now. They are not living in a, uh, a a palatial home on the east side that has twenty foot ceilings here. Oh. This basketball team was not going to win any national championships this season. I'm glad that they were able to write things in a sense, but it's also it's a transition year for Rodney Terry in his first full season as the Texas basketball coach. I don't care where that basketball team's living, Trey. The rent is due. The rent is due right now. Okay. <laughs> it's almost March 1st. We are in, we are in the first week of March by the end of this week. So the rent is due now for that team. If they, if they want anything to happen in March, if they want anything besides a couple home NIT games and maybe a nice uh, trip back to New York to happen, then, then they, they need, they need to pay rent right now. Cause it's due. Yeah. Neither of us are concerned about Dylan to It's time to start really working hard to figure out what can get Max Aismas going or have him serve as a true off guard and have him running off screens left and right to open him up for shots and let Tyrese Hunter become your primary ball handler. He look, no Longhorn was great against Kansas on Saturday. He was decent though. He had a decent game and it's actually a string of decent games for him. Now it looks like he's starting to regain his confidence and regain his shot too. Did you see them try to bring in my guy, Zarek on Yemma at the end of the, well, I know you were at the Austin FC game. Remember I was talking about Zarek on Yemma, how I thought he could be a tough guy down low this yeah. season. He, he still may be, he's a young player. He still may be at some point for this program, but I thought he could do that this year. And they put him in at the end. Cause I think Desu picked up a second foul or third foul uh, late in that first half. So they they brought on Yemma in and were basically looked like they just threw him out there and were like like foul Dickinson do whatever you need to do just be physical <laughs> and they put him out there and like in the first minute he picked up a foul and Dickinson was on the line for two I was like all right hey at least they're trying something 
he's got the body type of a dude who can be very effective down low. He's I don't think he's ever going to have the greatest offensive skill set necessarily, but a guy who has that size already and looks like he can put on a good sort of weight that it looks like he can put on. Just let's give him a couple years in the program and see what they can make him into. Yeah, and w- whether it's whether it's Onyema or Chris Johnson, some of these guys that you want to get time for right now and develop that you hope are guys that that stick around. This team pretty much all season because they didn't have Desue early and Onyema played a little bit more because of that, but they don't have the luxury of kind of giving guys a little more playing time than they otherwise would because they they can say, hey, we're we're all right right now with our seating. Like we're in. We might need these guys this year, later on down the line. And and not that even teams that are like that, like let's say a Baylor and Iowa State, not that those guys are just playing guys to play guys, but you're when you're a better team like that, you're generally going to have more blowout wins where you could throw some guys in late and get them some time. And Texas has had a few games like that, but but yeah, when you're fighting for just your tournament life with four regular season games left and it's kind of been up and down, a lot of down this season, yeah, then you don't have the luxury of of kind of letting those guys work it out on the court and, you know, let those growing pains play out. So if ever if there were, you know, knock on wood, an injury in the tournament, then a guy's got to come in. Because there's guys on the bench that haven't played much at all, whether it's him or, like I said, Chris Johnson. Like they're they're one injury away from having to play at least fifteen minutes a game. Yeah. <laughs> so that you know, and that that would spell trouble for Texas because they haven't been able to develop those guys at least in the game situations that you might otherwise be able to do. I thought Onyema was younger than he is. He's a junior right now, so good luck uh, getting him further developed in one more off season. This roster, now, he, he still might have two years though because of the COVID year. I think we're past the COVID year on things now. I think this was it for the COVID year, guys. No, you're right. You're right about that. Actually, basketball gets one more COVID year. So yeah, maybe he gets two more years. This roster is going to look very different next year, which shouldn't be a huge shock. It is college basketball in 2024 after all. But Dylan DeSue, he's gone. Kendall Weaver's a sophomore. He'll be back. Acemas is gone. Tyrese Hunter's a junior. Does he come back next year? So Hunter and Mitchell are... Two really interesting cases. I mean, Tyrese, I you would think that he would come back, but maybe he's just maybe he's just ready to move on. Like maybe he's just ready to go. Sometimes guys are just That's ready, are just ready to be a pro. And it doesn't matter that they don't have a great NBA stock. I mean, maybe he even maybe he realizes or he gets feedback from people that know a lot more basketball than you and I do. And they say, Hey man, even if you come back and lead this team and you guys go to the final four next year and you average 18 points a game or 20 points a game, like because your size, because of whatever it may be, you're not an NBA prospect in people's minds, at least to get drafted. So maybe you try to go, you know, figure it out in a, in a different way. But CB just asked, you think Mitchell regrets coming back? I don't, I don't think he does, but we are reaching a point with him where, you know, they say strike when the iron's hot, but the iron was hottest for him coming out of high school. Yes, it was. So now you're almost reaching the point where if he didn't have a draft stock after last year or the draft stock that he wanted, I'm sure he would have gotten picked. But if he didn't have the stock that he wanted, so he decides to come back, I don't think I've seen anything this year that makes me think that stock is going to go up. Maybe somebody would, 
take a use a second round pick on him or a late first round pick on him just because of the athleticism and they'll say hey he's still 20 years old he's a project and maybe they think you know coaches coaches are like that whether it's the nfl and we see with quarterbacks all the time and guys just getting extra opportunities because somebody thinks they can fix them that happens in the nba too because the nba even maybe more than any other league baseball you could throw that in too it's such a prospect league it's such a take a guy who's just an athletic athletic freak like Mitchell is and a really good dude. Like I'll say that about Dylan Mitchell, really good teammate, yeah. really good player, really smart guy. Um, awesome talking to him. Always love talking to him. So, I mean, he's going to check a lot of boxes, but like, I don't know if his NBA draft stock has gone up at all. It has, well, it may have gone up a little bit from freshman to sophomore year just because he's showing the ability to do a little bit more and he's he's gotten some more chances with things. But you're right, the iron was hottest coming out of high school. But this is a league that, much, much to its own detriment, loves to draft based on that P word, potential. And as soon as the uh, one-and-done rule was implemented, um, you had a lot of guys who were choosing to go to college for that one year and then make that leap to the NBA and the NBA, which for a long time got to use college basketball as its feeder system, much like the NFL does with college football, all of a sudden was having to guess a whole lot more on these guys who, Hey, maybe they were in the wrong situation or they didn't get enough playing time or they weren't the guy on that roster. So we still think we can turn them into that guy. But the reality is, is if you haven't proven at the college level yet, regardless of the situation with very few exceptions, you are not ready for the NBA. You're probably not ready for the G league either for that matter. And we've seen that play out here at Texas over the last decade. Now we get these big guys who are projected as lottery picks. When they come into school, a lot of them end up getting selected in the draft lottery or somewhere in the first round after that first year. And with the rare exception those guys have not panned out to jack shit. As a matter of fact, there are a couple of them who are out of the league right now. I'm assuming Kai Jones has not been picked up by another NBA team after uh, some of his off-court, off-season antics. But, I, actually uh, saw, I saw a highlight of him the other day, I think playing overseas somewhere is what it looks like. Hopefully he gets his shit figured out. But Kai Jones was at low basketball IQ and was very immature. As a freshman here at Texas, you saw that on the court. And any scout who saw that had to have known that he was years away from being anywhere decent enough to uh, to play regularly for an NBA team. Mobamba has had his ups and downs. Again, there have been exceptions. Uh, the, uh, the the best uh, the best exception is our guy Jared Allen, who has uh, become a v- really solid player at the NBA level. I haven't seen has, has Jericho Sims become anything at the NBA. I know he's not exactly that yes. type of guy. I thought he would be better than uh, than what people were anticipating for him. Where he's, his draft stock was or wasn't coming out of school. He's a role player for the Knicks right now. Gets that, gets a little. That's great to hear. I love to hear yeah. that. Gets a little uh, bit of time. Sorry, I'm Greg trying to Brown figure out. Seen the league right now? Is Greg Brown on an NBA roster anywhere? Uh, Greg Brown is playing in the G League right now. Still in the G League. Yeah. So he might have benefited. You could argue from staying in school for a couple of more years, staying within yeah. a program, becoming the guy at the college level where he gets that exposure. And look, I know he still got first round pick status, but him staying in school probably would have helped him out. I think that we'll probably see uh, Dylan Mitchell leave after this year. He may get drafted in the first round, maybe a second round guy, and he'll spend a couple of years in the G League. 
Dylan Mitchell would probably be better off because you can get paid in school now, legally get paid, I should say, staying at Texas for another year, if not staying for all four years to try and develop uh, with this coaching staff. Okay, so this Kai Jones video that I saw was him playing for, looks like the uh, Bahamian national team. When whatever, in whatever cup is going on right now. Good luck, Kai. Yeah, and playing like for the said, Bahamian team in the middle of basketball season, which I don't think is a good thing. No, I wouldn't say that's a great sign when, uh, you know, the NBA is moving towards the playoffs on its calendar right now, post all-star break. Yeah, But I have a NBA mock draft up from three days ago on Bleacher Report. Okay. And I, I key searched Dylan Mitchell and did not see him on there. So, wow. And again, I mean, there's a lot of things that could that could change, but but the roster next year, look, Dill Mitchell comes back, that would be great. That would be a huge cue. The roster next year is going to look drastically different, just based on guys who will be out of eligibility. Brock Cunningham's done. Um, it Horton, whatever it's worth, he's done. Caden Shedrick's done. Tyrese Hunter, does he come back? Maybe. Ace Smith's done. Weaver could come back. Dessou's done. So they're going to need some of these younger guys to step up. Rodney Terry is going to have to do a better job in the transfer portal. And uh, hopefully some of these high school recruits, because they have at least one big-time high school recruit coming in, correct? Uh, Trey Uh, Johnson, yeah. Trey Johnson, yeah. So Trey Johnson's going to have to come in and and provide some quality minutes too, because otherwise we're going to get more of the same next season. Well, and they have Nick Nick Cody coming in too, who's another good prospect, but – he suffered some sort of injury recently that I'm not sure how that'll affect his, you know, preparation once he gets to Texas and his training. But I mean, that that's not a great sign there. And also with these freshmen, this is one thing I always say too. everyone talking about like, look, Ron Holland would have made a difference. I will hear, I will hear people out on that. Ron Holland would have made a difference, but these AJ freshmen Johnson would have too. He would have, but I think, I think people overvalue when guys don't end up going somewhere. They overvalue the impact they would have made or could have made because how many times have we seen a freshman? I mean, you just mentioned a bunch of guys like that come in and they're supposed to make this big difference, whether it's a Greg Brown or even a guy who had a little more success early in the Shaka era, a a Mo Bamba, you know, and he played a little bit more time. I think, I don't know where he's at right now in the NBA, but you know, he was, he was a rotational guy for for a little while with the Magic. It's on the Lakers for a minute too, but a lot of times these guys come in and they're not ready to just take over a college program. Or you know, for every guy that you see, I, I'm blanking on the freshman's name at Duke right now, but there's like two or three of those guys every year that come in and make an immediate difference and are just total studs right away. And the rest of the guys that you see dominating college basketball are usually third and fourth year guys or more. I mean, they're, you know, guys like Zach Eady, who really didn't start doing what he was doing until his, I mean, sophomore year when Texas played him and Chris Beard's first season, the second round before they lost the next round, I think to Max Aismas's Oral Roberts squad. Mm. Um, but anyway, yeah, he's going to be back, back-to-back National Player of the Year. But a lot of these guys, they, you know, they've been around forever. Armando Baycott. Dr. Armando Baycott. I hope that guy has a ton of degrees right now (laughs) because, you know, that's, that's what wins is I think guard play 
wins, but also experience guard play is really what, what takes you deep, which is why I think, and I'm not just saying this because of, you know, recency bias or because I've watched them play a lot. That's why I think Houston really, really has a good chance, as good of a chance as they've ever had. Cause I know they've, they've hit walls in the tournament at different points in Samson's time there, but I don't know if that's going to happen this year. I'd be shocked if they don't get to the elite eight or, or the final four. Yeah, they're good inside and out. And Shed is so good. Yeah, Shed is really good. Look, Ron Holland, I think, would have been a difference maker for Texas this year. But even A.J. Johnson, he just provides you more depth with that backcourt. And that's what one of the things that this team is sorely lacking right now is quality bodies one through eight. You get a little bit of that with seven and eight sometimes, but those guys have been giant question marks too, including Brock Cunningham who is working his way back into good graces now. And I actually see him playing a different sort of game too. He's not playing as dirty, I guess, just to put it bluntly. like Reckless maybe? Re- reckless, yeah. Well, I see I see actually Kendall Weaver, and I think the coaches are playing him less because they're trying to get him to play less reckless. Cunningham, there was intent, which is why I'm calling it dirty more than reckless. He's not playing as dirty or as reckless now. And when things do happen, I actually saw him go up and check on a guy afterwards. So I think he realized that he had established a reputation and that it was, it it probably went into, it got into his head at some point this year, which may help explain those shooting struggles. So the shooting is starting to come around a little bit. We're seeing him as an effective player, good passer for a big guy who can uh, help facilitate the offense someone who is uh, leveling out and becoming a, a good teammate and a valuable part of the rotation again. Now, that's not to say I want him to play more than 20 minutes in a given game. His ideal minutes is probably somewhere around 15, but it's good to get somebody like that back into the fray that you can rely on once again. But they need more of those types of guys, and A.J. Johnson and Ron Holland would have provided that, if nothing else. So Rodney Terry from the jump is playing a little bit shorthanded versus where he would have been. And by the way, Ron Holland would be the uh, the obvious option for that third score, sometimes second or maybe even first score too, just based on how good he was in high school and what the potential was when he entered uh, the G League before he suffered, I think it was a foot or an ankle injury and is now out for the year. Well, and it it also, it the, the timing of it wasn't great. The timing of it didn't help Rodney and his staff at all because – Again, they still had time to go into the portal and get more guys. And I think maybe when they got a guy late in the portal like IT Horton, they thought they were going to get a little bit more out of him, I'm sure. But also, if you know way earlier on that that's going to happen with Ron Holland, and maybe there were rumblings behind the scenes and Texas didn't take them seriously enough. I don't know that to be the case, but I will, I'll give them a little bit of grace on the timing of losing both of those guys was not great at all because then you then you're scrambling for two more guys. And again, like you were saying, even if these guys weren't, you know, 15 to 20 point a game scorers, that, that is a good point. They, that, that is depth that depth that they could have trusted. Again, what I was just saying earlier about having some guys on the bench who you hope will, will be parts of your program and role players or even starters at some point, you know, later on, but they're not there right now. And maybe those freshmen would, would be there um, if they had come to Texas, but I think the timing of it wasn't great. I was trying to find the exact date that Ron Holland decommitted, but I think well, it happened, was, I want to say it happened in like May or something. We're both yeah, which guys is, announced that they were going pro, which is not great because we know as soon as the NCAA tournament ends, as soon as they they hit stop on one shining moment, 
these guys are flooding the portal. Yep. Especially the last two years with the rules, the rule changes being more recent and guys just wanting to see what it's like, see what else is out there. Or a lot of COVID grad transfer extra year guys like Max Smith who are like, Hey, I got a little, you know, cut a little break here with my timing in college basketball. So, Hey, let's, uh, let's go to Texas and see what we can do there. But they could have found another guy like that and they weren't able to do that. Yeah. Ron Holland decommitted on April 28th. Mm. I mean, that's not ideal. No, not ideal. Yeah. CB threw it in there as well. Thank you, CB. Um, <laughs> it's not great. Not great when you're trying to rebuild a roster that lost Marcus Carr, Timmy Allen, Serge Ibari Rice. I mean, you go down the list of all the guys they lost. Not great, Bob. Not great. NGB, as a, as I say to Bob Ballou in the CBS Austin Sports Office. Oh, yes. That's a great, great, um, what's the word I'm looking for, Jeff? Acronym. Acronym. Thank you. My goodness. Yeah. We, we yeah. overdo it on those, on those a little bit in the uh, CBS Austin Sports Office, but we have a good time. Yes, it's you do. Oh, I've got you a present that I need to, uh, that I need to go grab. And so while we do that, we're going to uh, hear from our friends at Covert BK. Hi, I'm Dan Covert with my wife, Hayden. Welcome to Covert BK. Our newest location in the gorgeous Hill Country includes Buick, GMC, Cadillac, Chrysler, Dodge, Jeep, and Ram, and hundreds of pre-owned and certified vehicles for you to choose from. We have three service departments that are ready to take care of your car, truck, or SUV with 86 service bays to accommodate any repair and get you in and out quickly. Come visit us today to select the vehicle you've been dreaming about. Covert, born and raised in Austin. Are you ready? Oh, this is like Christmas morning. I know, except I'm opening your present. It's a little bit weird, but hey, we that's go. fine. Oh, let's go. Yeah, buddy. Rock. <laughs> Straight from the homage.com website. Great, uh, great products at uh, Homage. They have really good t shirts, good sports shirts, good pop culture stuff, too. Rock Purdy shirt finally came in, so uh, I'm going to figure out a way to get this shirt to you. I may just need to get your mailing address once oh, we're done, or maybe we should get together for uh, for an early lunch or something one of these days. We should, yeah. We'll uh, we'll t- we'll talk off the airways, but yeah, we should definitely. So yeah, definitely figure yeah, something out. I, I need to that a couple weeks, I was worried that uh, homage had stolen my money, but then I got the package in the mail over the weekend. I was like, yes. I I honestly can't believe that when we went to that quick commercial. I was thinking like, what could this be? <laughs> I thought maybe it was like something basketball related because of uh, the, the bit that that's become, but even better, a hundred times better than that. That is awesome. Yeah. Gosh, yeah. I'm going to look so slick in that. Get my haircut tomorrow. So the next time I wear that, I'm going to, or the first time I wear that, I'm going to fresh cut with it. <laughs> oh, so I consider just uh, taking it for myself, but then I realized I didn't want to advertise Brock Purdy to the world. So I uh, deci- <laughs> decided to uh, follow through on uh, on giving this gift to you. Yeah, if you wore that, that would be that would be inauthentic based on your your takes on Brock Purdy. Not, exactly. not that, and to be clear, not that you're a Brock Purdy hater. I'm just a Brock Purdy lover. Yes, I'm I'm in the middle with Brock Purdy. I think that uh, the people that are hard on him are being way too hard on him. I also do recognize that Brock Purdy would go pump fake Purdy at Iowa State and cost his team games at times, and I expect to see that at some point at the NFL level, but I'm rooting for Brock Purdy. I think that's a great story. Mr. Irrelevant, 
leading his team to a Super Bowl. That's awesome. Sports is about the really good stories to a point you made a couple months ago. And uh, so Brock Purdy's a fine story. A hater's going to hate. You just got to shake it off, as the great Taylor Swift once said. You know, I you know I totally agree, but uh, unfortunately, the greater sports fan gets you love the story at first, and then they get bored of it, and it's like, whoa, whoa, hey, chief, settle down. You're you're just like one of us now. It was cool when you were like one of us, and you got to run this high powered offense for a little bit. You're slinging way too many touchdowns now, and then and then it's like, whoa, whoa hey, buddy, we gotta we gotta put you back in your place unnecessarily. Instead of just act, instead of just accepting like how awesome that was, like I thought that was one of the coolest storylines of the Super Bowl that maybe we talked about it more than I'm giving credit. Not not you and I, but just in general, like the media talked about it a little bit more than I'm giving credit. But the quarterback matchup, where having even you have a guy who's basically on deck in the on deck circle to be the greatest of all time, and you know, he's on, well, now has his third Super Bowl, but going to the game could have won his second or could have won his third Super Bowl, was going for that. And then you have Mr. Irrelevant in his first full year as a starter. And yep. I heard, um, I should give proper credit, but I can't remember where exactly I heard this, but somebody uh, made a great point the other day where they said, Brock Purdy saved jobs in San Francisco. I'm not saying maybe, I'm not saying they would have, like immediately fired Shanahan or, um, or John Lynch or, you know, their other front office guys, but that's pretty inexcusable. What happened with Trey Lance for as good as they've been as a front office in other scenarios, that is, I mean, that is atrocious. What happened with Trey Lance to, to take him as one thing to trade up and go through all that, and then essentially just immediately be like, and maybe they deserve credit for this part of it, immediately being like, hey, this was a mistake. Like, this is not working out. I know he had his first couple games that he got to play when they put him in before he got injured, but still, whoo. I mean, that is about as bad as it gets from a draft pick standpoint. Terrible. And more people have not lost their jobs. By the way, San Francisco clearly not afraid to pull the trigger. Their DC who helped get them there ends up getting fired right after the Super Bowl, too. So it's not like they're opposed to firing guys. Did you see CB's most recent comment here? Oh, no, Kyle. Oh, my goodness, oh. Kyle. Do not do that. Well, yeah, um, I, I know I know, I know what you're going to say, and I actually do agree. The, well, the defense wasn't great for the Chargers, though. I mean, yeah. maybe he's topping out as DC. Maybe he's topping out as a defensive analyst. But it was for me. Here is opinions on uh, statistical bullshit, and uh, just tell him, all right, Brandon, go back to the office now. Maybe he could be a good defensive coordinator. At least he's not making those game management decisions on the sidelines, which is probably where you thought I was heading initially. He he wasn't. Well, no, I think we're. I I I I agree with what you said because I do think that there are a lot of situations where guys are just really good coordinators, and that look that is being an NFL coordinator, heck, even being a power five or a G five coordinator, that is some of the highest level coaching that you can do in the sport. I mean, being an NFL coordinator, there's, you know, only, well, I guess if you count special teams, there's more, but they always say, Oh, one of 32. Well, offense and defense there's only that's only one of 64, but in the world for those jobs, but that, that position I think can sometimes fit a guy 
like Staley where it's like, hey, dude, just call the offense or call the defense. You don't have to worry about being the CEO. You worry about your side of the ball. You worry about pouring into these guys, developing these relationships with half the team, and somebody else will take it from there. So I do think some sometimes situations like that can work out really well for guys. They can. I'm skeptical that it's going to work out for Brandon Staley, though. I think that whatever he had, because he came from the Rams, is that correct? Staley? Yeah. Yeah, he was McVay's DC. I think whatever he had with the Rams, he also had the benefit of Aaron Donald and a really good Jalen Ramsey and some other great individual players. Not to say that he won't have good individual players with San Francisco too, but I'm skeptical that he's even good as a defensive coordinator at this point. That's how bad his head coaching tenure was. Yeah, it was, it was, it was not good. It was not good. You mentioned a defensive analyst, which got me back to thinking, uh, cause my dad always says about backup quarterback, he you know, would always make the classic dad joke of like, Oh, it's the best job in America. Acting like these guys aren't like insanely good at what they do too. Yeah. But defensive offensive analyst for like Texas or another power five program, a blue blood program. Is there a better gig than that after your head coaching career either ends because you want to retire and scale back or you got fired somewhere? Like that's a sweet gig. I mean, you're you're not getting paid a lot, but the guys that take those jobs have gotten paid plenty, and a lot of times they're getting paid buyouts still. That's a yeah. that's a gig though, man. Especially at Texas, you get to live in Austin, or if you go in and do that at USC or UCLA, Stanford, Cal, you know, I don't know, some big city that you want to that you you would want to live in, and you're working forty hours a week, watching tape, sending the coaches notes. You're like scouting ahead on opponents and then sending it to them whenever it comes around. Like that's. That's, that's a nice gig. Maybe I'm misattributing this. That's part of Nick Saban's brilliance, though. Like, he realized how to game the system by bringing all these guys in as analysts and paying them a, a small salary because they're getting paid buku bucks by their former employer. And at the same time, he's giving them a, an absolute masterclass on how to run a program or how to run various aspects of a program. And we've seen a lot of those guys become straight up assistance for him or uh, move on to other jobs and do pretty well too. Congratulations. One of those guys, major apple whites. Now the head football coach at South Alabama was a great OC for them. I think over the last couple of years. So, and let's I mean, see, another great example of that, of, of these guys coming in and uh, kind of hitting, getting to hit reset while still getting paid crazy money by their former employer and, and really learning on the job and, and catching a little bit of a break too, because the football season is such a grind. It's not a, it's not easy street when you're an analyst like that, but you're not having to worry about game day pressures nearly as much as the guys who are actually standing on the sidelines in the, that official coach capacity. Oh, no doubt. And the circumstances of every firing are, are different too. And a lot of times guys just want to go, like I said, just want to go watch tape, scale back a little bit, get to watch what Saban does. Uh, how he runs his program or how, you know, whether it's maybe it's somebody does the same with Kirby smart or Dabo at Clemson or Ryan day at Ohio state Harbaugh. When he was at Michigan, you go to one of those places and you learn a ton by just sitting back and watching. And I mean, I'm somebody that firmly believes you get the most of your growth and experience by the experience by actually doing it. 
But when you're as experienced as those guys are and you have some of the scar tissue of being fired and not working out, I think it does help to take a step back and get to watch it from a different perspective. We hear players across all sports say that all the time about being injured. When they come back from an injury, you know, season-long injury especially, they'll say, I mean, I learned so much more about the game from, you know, being able to watch however many months of this from a different perspective. Like obviously they all watch tape, but getting to watch the game live, just sitting on the bench. And that's, I'm sure the same goes, goes for coaching. And, you know, to an extent, Sark's Sark said as much. Sorry. I just had to change my camera there. The, uh, there was a sunlight was bouncing off the white brick outside my window and I looked like a fucking ghost. So my apologies. <laughs> you're like, you're like me on uh, on Friday. Yeah, it was it was not good. So you and I both see very similar things, and it bothers us when something is something is off like that. So we've got to figure out the solution there. But you're absolutely right about the experience mattering more than just the just uh, learning how something works. You, for for a lot of us, you and me included, we have to go through the trials and tribulations of something to even start to begin to understand it, much less get good at it. Oh yeah. I mean, for me, that's, you know, sports casting, my shows on the news, I got better by sucking at times by really messing it up and learning, Hey, I need to be more prepared on this. Or the next time this happens and I feel myself spiraling or I, I feel, I feel the show coming off the rails or somebody else makes a mistake or I make a mistake, whatever it may be, you, you build up that in your mind of, okay, here's how I'm going to handle this. And you try to get yourself to the point where, and nobody ever really does, where you feel like there's nothing you haven't seen. And I'm not, I'm not going to claim to be there. Like I said, I don't know if anybody ever gets there, but, but yeah, you, you, you build that up over time by, by doing it for sure. Was there a point where you felt like you had gotten pretty good at it? A moment, a story, mm. something like that? I don't know if there was like a specific moment or anything like that. Cause I mean, it's still so imperfect. It's the same with, same with radio, same with this platform, whatever it may be, you could plan it however you want. Now, obviously our sports casts are much shorter and compact and they're, they're, you know, 80% scripted, 90% scripted. Sometimes it's completely scripted, but you still go into a show saying, oh yeah, this is how I'm going to emphasize this or really hit this point in 30, 40 seconds and then get into this soundbite. And then you, you leave the show and you're like, that, that did not come out how I wanted it to. Not that anybody at home cares as long as it wasn't totally, you know, like, oh my God, obvious this guy made a mistake. But yeah, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's the same for you. Well, we, we talk about interviewing all the time. I'm sure you go into an interview and you, at, you ask a question and it doesn't land or you didn't deliver it the way you wanted to deliver it. You're, you're thinking all day, like, I'm going to ask this, this question. And, you know, maybe it lands, maybe it doesn't. Which actually, may, I, I meant to compliment you on this when we were coming out of the interview earlier. But that last question where you just totally stumped him mm. and then he paused and gave a great answer about, I think, guys, I don't know, was it a godfather figure, something like father figure for him? And I was like, man, that almost like made me emotional listening to that. I was like, it made me think about people like that in my life. But sometimes a question like that can be so good that like it just throws a guy off at first. He was like, man. <laughs> yeah. So good, good, good stuff there. 
Thank you. I appreciate that. That's so speaking of those moments where you're like, why couldn't I have done this slight, a slight bit differently? I didn't want to leave him hanging. So I started to talk right when he figured it out. I needed to stay quiet for one more beat to not start to talk over him. Ultimately, it doesn't matter that much for the conversation. If you listen for two more seconds, you heard an awesome answer and he gave a great answer. And I'm like you, like I kind of welled up a little bit in the moment. I'm like, whoa, that is powerful, man. Yeah, because there's like, answers- that's his reputation. You hear him in other interviews with people who work with him, and you're like, you are, you are one of the the greatest dudes on the planet. You learn about his upbringing, and he, his, uh, I think his parents or his mom was a teacher, and his dad did something that was a positive impact in the community in uh, the greater Chicago land area, and he's like a representation of that too, and so. For that person to tell him that you're going to do well because you're a good person, that's really cool. And for him to be a good person, as I uh, maybe crudely followed up with in a a, um, a sea of sharks, since that industry is full of sharks and full of exploiters and full of people who who chew up and spit out good people, is uh, I think it's a testament to uh, just how good of a person he actually is, as well as being extremely talented as a uh, comedian. Yeah, and I mean this is a complete compliment to him. Watching that interview, he didn't seem famous. He just seemed like a regular guy. Yeah. And obviously, he's super famous. I mean, I would recognize him the second I saw him. I mean, from his role in The Office is what I would immediately recognize him yeah. for. <laughs> is there something else that I'm that I'm missing on? Because obviously, I was rebooting at, during the first part of that interview. But is there is there another role that that maybe if I had watched, I would I would go, oh yeah, that's who that is. A Hot Tub Time Machine is a movie. Um, I did not watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine, but there are a lot of people who know him from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He's been in a bunch of stuff. He's done cameos on shows here and there. He was in um, Eastbound and Down. Oh, yes, he was. Yeah. God, I, mm, I didn't even think about that. Oh. I looked at his IMDb credits and, and asked something about that because that his storyline in that show was freaking hilarious. That show is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Uh, yeah. Um, oh, man. Okay, so I need to tell you about this uh, relating to the Austin FC game that we went to on Saturday. So the Austin FC... Wait, did I tell the story already about Cap Metro? No, I think we were we got on to something else. I started... I was cutting out early and then I started screaming about Texas basketball or something and then... Perfect. No no problem. Just making sure I'm not repeating myself on the three to five show. I mean, you just... You did... The only thing you got to... You mentioned that you guys went and because it was free, you took... You took Cap Metro and then it stopped at you turning the game on YouTube TV. Perfect. Okay. So... Cap Metro has just added a Michaela place or Austin FC stop for specifically for Austin FC games, I believe. So there's a stop there now. It's literally right outside the entrance of the stadium. And it's a positive for Cap Metro, this train line that has been uh, everybody's whipping boy for ever since it got started because, well, it's kind of a worthless piece of shit train line, if, if I'm being completely honest about it. It comes out here to Cedar Park. It goes all the way up to Leander. I am stopped by that train routinely on Palmer and I see it completely empty, regardless of the direction it's going, regardless of the time of the day. I'm guessing as it gets deeper into Austin and eventually drops people off at the eastern part of downtown near the Hilton Hilton Hotel, there's a decent crowd on the train. But for the most part, it seems like a colossal waste of money. 
So for Cap Metro to add a stop for Austin FC games could be a positive for people who want to go to the games and not have to worry about parking around that stadium in that area of North Austin. So we get to the Lake Line platform, which is the second platform from the north. The train stops at Leander. When it comes back down, it stops at Lake Line. So Lake Line is the second stop. And there's a couple more stops before you get to the Austin FC Stadium, the Q2 Stadium. Well, we get there with a plan on getting on the train, which should arrive to the stadium about an hour before the game begins, so we could spend some time around the stadium. We get to the to the station and get to the platform, and there's, I don't know, 100 to 150 people waiting for the train. Jeff, these trains usually only uh, have two cars running at any given time. So Justine and I look at one another and we're like, we hope this train has added like a car or two because otherwise there's no way all these people are going to fit on the train. Sure enough, the train pulls in around the time that it's supposed to. And just based on the Leander stop, it's already full in terms of there not be, being any empty seats. And so you have this 100 to 150 people start to sardine their way into the train cars, and they're essentially just going to stand in aisles, which is possible on trains, of course. But Justine and I looked at one another, and our kids are with us too, and we're just like, this is not happening right now. So we're like, we're going to drive. Kids are crushed because they wanted to be able to tell their classmates they rode on a train. It was as important as whatever junk food they were going to get at the stadium. They were crushed. We explained to them the train's crowded. There was no guarantee we were going to get on the train because we were already in the back of the line. And so we just drove to the game and parked where we had previously for the one other game that we went to last May. And game itself was fun. Austin FC lost because they are losing a lot these last couple of seasons. Went home, didn't have to deal with the absolute nightmare that it must have been to try and get on the train to go back to where your car was, regardless of the stop. And we're no worse for the wear. So unfortunately for Cap Metro, in an effort to build up goodwill and endear yourself to a group of people that have maligned you nonstop since you got going a decade or so ago, you had a major backfire there. What started out as a good idea turned into horrible execution because you did not have the foresight to understand just how popular of an idea it would have been. You always need to, uh, you always need to err on the side of having too many train cars in a situation like that the next time. Cap Metro, because you have uh, probably lost a couple of people, myself and my wife, for uh, for the rest of our time of going to Austin FC games. I want nothing to do with that fucking train anymore. The one time you need it, it's not there. The one time. So let me let me ask this: How much did you pay for parking? Parking was twenty bucks. And you were how close to the stadium? Like, could you walk to the stadium? Oh, the walk the walk was a seven to ten minute walk to the stadium. It was easy. So, I mean, I know why you guys tried to do it the first time, but like, why would people not just do that every time? Like you're already like, I get saving money, like 20 bucks for parking to me, doesn't seem like that much for a sporting event, given what you probably already spent on your ticket yeah, and what you're going to spend inside. I mean, if you take a family of four, you know, like two parents, two kids, and you guys each get like one thing, a snack, maybe a soda for the kids, a beer or two, glass of wine, whatever for the parents. Like you're going to spend over a hundred dollars just for that. It was so, not. So what, what is the train really doing when you could just go park for 20 bucks and walk? 
you does, still like yeah. you still have to go drive and park somewhere. Like that's always my issue with the train is we're not a city. Like people can complain about parking all they want. Trey, you and I both lived in like real, real metropolitan areas. It makes sense there. Like we used to take, my mom lives in like North Hollywood, Toluca Lake area of LA. And by Universal Studios, there's a little park and ride place that takes you into downtown. Well, and it's like underground, like they don't call it a subway, but it's kind of similar to the Austin deal, Hmm. the rail line, but it's underground. So we would take that to Laker games sometimes and then just walk to Staples Center and take that back. Or somebody would pick us up, drop us off, like my mom would come get us. But that made sense because parking down there was way more expensive and it like didn't exist in a lot of places or it was kind of sketchy and you just didn't really want to do it. But in this case, I'm not trying to knock the rail line. Like that people have that option and have another option, I appreciate. But it's not even really the safe ride after you've been drinking thing if you still have to go park your car somewhere like that's what i don't get or i guess you and then if you have to uber to the to the cap metro station and then get on get on it and then get on it again and then uber back like i i guess maybe i'm missing the convenience here yeah i mean we parked at the train station which was a seven minute drive from our house and so it's less of a drive-in theory but i'm with you you take the train in a city like LA or New York and Chicago because traffic is just ungodly. Right. The traffic's not that bad. Or I mean, I, I guys, like I work there Our Trey, you know how close our station is to the stadium. The yeah. traffic is not that bad. If it is, it's for a very short period of time. Oh, there was a tiny bit of traffic too, but everybody was lane stacking. So there was a second left turn lane to get you on to burn it from yeah. Mopac uh, heading South. They do a great so, job. No, it was simple, and I knew exactly where we needed to go to park because the last time we did so, I parked north of the stadium to make it easier for us to get out and found a little hidden gym there. So same thing this time around. Don't give away your secret. Uh, I'm, I'm okay with it. If you if you people uh, take my secrets, have at it. There, there are other secrets to be found. I'm a, I'm a giver today, Jeff. I'm a giver. How, but, how uh, yeah, we, we did it. We did it for the novelty that pure and simple. We did it for the novelty and to try and show some support for a train line that uh, I like to mock every time it stops me on Parmer. And yeah, we won't be taking it again. I mean, it's, we've tried to take it to downtown in the past because our kids, they want to take the train line. It's like, all right, we'll take it downtown and we'll walk around downtown a little bit. It's kind of a sketchy proposition nowadays, but uh, I'm, I'm done with that prospect at this point. If it's not, Middle of rush hour, even if it is middle of rush hour, I'll take the freaking toll lanes around to uh, to get into downtown or someplace like that. Like, it's just, it is not convenient. And that's always been my gripe with that train line is good train lines. They follow the major thoroughfares. They're usually serving as a vein in the middle of a major thoroughfare. So like in Chicago, the blue line goes, it goes up to, it goes up, um, uh, Interstate 290, and then it goes up the 9094 all the way up to the split up to O'Hare Airport. And good train systems, they tend to follow the main vein of traffic. This one doesn't do that. It's like winding all the way through northwest Austin, and it eventually gets to a point where it makes a little bit more sense, but there's no rhyme or reason. It's trying to touch every part of the city, and in the process just makes it a very inconvenient option to get anywhere. Yeah, I mean – it should be going like right up against Mopac. So if you take it, if you have a nine to five and you live in the suburbs North or South 
and you won't even know if it goes south. I'm sure it does. And and you it, live it meanders towards the south. It doesn't go due south. But if you live downtown or you work downtown, it yeah, you would you would think that you would want it to be showing you, hey dude, look at all the time you're saving when while all these other schmucks sit on Mopac. And look, I have an opposite commute. Uh, I didn't have to go to my regular job today, and I don't tomorrow. Like I have weird, you know, I got a weird schedule. I get that I can't compare myself to everybody else's schedule because the, the the traffic there's there's bad traffic in Austin. I'm not trying to totally dismiss that, but this is not. It's it's just it's just not as bad as a major major metropolitan city. Some of the ones that we just talked about. So that's why I think like there's only there's only 20,000 people that go to these Austin FC games. And sure, that's a lot. That's a, definitely categorizes as a, as an event, a special event. They should have every, everything they're doing. I'm actually like, I have nothing to bad to say about the way they handle the traffic. I feel like it moves pretty well when they would have those games at eight o'clock. Our shows would a lot of times would end like pretty close to when the worst traffic would be. And I always just stuck around or I was already at the game. But even people in our office would say like, yeah, it actually wasn't that bad. Like I got out of there pretty quick. People let me in and then I made a ride and like, I, you know, went, went whatever way and I was home. So I, I just don't, and look, maybe there's some people that don't want to drive, don't drive at all. And they're like, this is what I want to take. But I don't think it's helping the masses per se. Like you no. said, you just, you literally said you just did it for the novelty. <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not. It's not. And the novelty, well, it's worn off for us. So good luck to anybody else who's going to take Cap Metro to get to an Austin FC game. Maybe they'll get it fixed. Maybe they'll offer an explanation as to why they weren't better prepared and they'll be more like Boy Scouts this next time and be truly prepared for the uh, the crowds that are likely to come. But then again, guessing at least half those people aren't going to waste their time with the train again. They're just going to Uber it or take their car to the game themselves. BK tried to take it from... uh, Close to the downtown stop, same thing. They were able to get on the train, but the train was delayed by 30 minutes in getting into the stadium. They were trying to get there a half hour before, and they got there right when the national anthem was being sang. And the train was like stopping and backing up at times. There was no PA announcement as to what what was going on, so there was no rhyme or reason to it all other than just a very efficient train system proving its uh, proving its lack of value to a city. Well, hey, we got one for the train in the comments as we end the day. Steven, train worked for Steven, so there well, we go. Nathan Brazos lived in Leander. The train was perfect for me. First stop in the morning, and then my walk was four blocks from the office. Yes, if you work in that part of downtown, it's great. If you work across downtown, though, you're still having to take a bike shower or an Uber to get to where you're working. So, But, Steven, I'm glad it worked for you. It does, does work for uh Small percentage of people. That's what Austin tends to do with uh, with its services is cater to a very small percentage of people and, and uh, screwing everybody else in the process. And with that, we are to five o'clock. Good job today, my friend. Hey, you too. Sorry about sorry about the beginning. We'll get it right next time. That's how it goes sometimes. Thanks to everybody for tuning in today. If you're on YouTube right now, please click that thumbs up button. Subscribe to the Texas Sports Unfiltered channel. If you have not already, make sure to tell somebody about it as well. And if you are listening on the app, well, you've already downloaded that free app. For everybody else, go to your app store, search Texas Sports Unfiltered to download the free app. For Jeff and everybody else here at Texas Sports Unfiltered, I am Trey Elling. We'll talk to you tomorrow from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., starting with Bucky and BK at 8 a.m. In the meantime, have yourselves a great rest of the evening and welcome.